Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Good evening. How are you folks? All right, you ready for winter? You don't have any option, do you? It's going to be here this weekend. All right. Well, we are glad you're here. This will be, so you're aware, this will be the last night of our Corrective Lens series. And uh, I'm going to ask you toward the end, we'll have Michael up here for a minute, just to express our, for you to help me express appreciation for what these guys have given us this semester on top of their current teaching load to give us Wednesday nights has been awesome. And so we'll get a chance to say thank you to them for that. But I want to say thank you to each of you uh, for being faithful to come as your schedule allows and to be a part of this. Um, we will next Wednesday night, you'll be invited to come. The high school group is coming over. They've been studying worship all fall. And they're having a, a worship night in here, and they've invited all of the parents and those who want to be a part of that to come be and to, to join them in what they're learning about what it means to worship, which is to live. And so wanted you to be aware of that, that you're welcome to come back next Wednesday night, and we'll meet in here, and then that will end the semester, and we'll take our little holiday break and come back at it in January. So that's kind of a forecast of where we're going. But I'm taking up this man's time, so we're going to talk tonight about the Bible. And some questions that have come in about how do we know what we have is enough, where did we get it, what are some of the tests of scrutiny over what's called the canon. And the smart guy next to me will take care of all of that stuff. I'm just going to pray, and then we'll uh, turn it over to Chad and let him lead tonight. God, thank you for this place that we can meet. And I thank you for each person that you've permitted to be a part of this. I'm grateful, God, for our health, that we're well enough to be here, that you've given us safe journey that you've provided for us the things that we need, rest and food and clothing and uh, a warm place to gather, a safe place for our kids. I'm just grateful for what's going on in this entire campus and in every church that gathers on Wednesday nights throughout this community. I'm just grateful that your word is being taught, that people are open to it, and that you're doing amazing things through it. So tonight as we focus on your scriptures and your will in the word, uh, God, open our minds and hearts that we might learn and uh, become closer to you and be able to understand more and more what you've done for us and what you've provided. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, so here's uh, how I'd like to structure things this evening. Um, there's a lot of different directions that we can go uh, talking about Scripture. Um, a lot of different questions that come up when it comes uh, to the Word of God, when it comes to Scripture. I have on the front of your handout here given you... Um, some questions that I've asked and answered, or at least tried to answer in various ways, um, related to the Bible. We're not going to cover all these questions tonight. There's simply not enough time. Uh, we'll, c we'll cover hopefully a handful of them, but um, this is just the beginning of a discussion, unfortunately, tonight. I'd love to have more time than what we have. But um, So what I'd like to do is I would like to be a little bit audience driven tonight if that's if that makes sense if that's okay um to just hear what's on your mind questions related to scripture if you do have questions related to scripture and and maybe use some of these questions as a guide but just anything that you've wondered about that you've heard about um and if you don't feel comfortable raising your hand which is totally understandable feel free to text um on the phone number you see up on the screen and um, those will be passed along to me. So um, let's just go ahead and dive right in. 
And I want to I want to make some introductory comments first of all, just very briefly, uh, related uh, kind of to the first two questions: What is the Bible, and what is the Bible about? Um, the short answer to the first question is: The Bible is the Word of God. That's that's the short answer. But of course, inevitably, that leads to the follow-up: Well, what do you mean by that? What do you mean that the Bible is the Word of God? Um, Christians have always used this word inspiration to talk about Scripture, that Scripture is the inspired Word of God, which you can find evidence of this doctrine in several places. Maybe one of the best places for this is in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where Paul says that all Scripture is God-breathed, breathed out, um, and is therefore useful. Useful for all sorts of things. He talks about teaching, training, rebuking. But he's, he's talking in, in 2 Timothy 3, he's talking about the authority and the usefulness of Scripture because it is God-breathed. And so what we believe about Scripture is that Scripture has essentially a double authorship. That there are human authors who 2,000 years ago sat down and wrote the pages of Scripture, and to, not just 2,000 years ago, but beyond, if you're talking about the Old Testament, who sat down and wrote the pages of Scripture. But this process of the writing of these texts was superintended, and to some mysterious extent even guided, by the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, what we don't believe, and what Christians really have never believed about Scripture, is some sort of dictation theory, uh, which is precisely what Mormons believe about the Book of Mormon. It's also what Muslims believe about the Quran. This is not what Christians have historically believed about Scripture, that God simply whispered into the ears of Paul or John or, or whatever, this is the words that you're supposed to write. That's not really what Christians have believed about inspiration. Instead, we believe that the Holy Spirit was working upon and through the human authors as they're writing Scripture. Now, that makes a big difference. You know, what, what we believe about Scripture makes a dif big difference because we believe that Scripture isn't just an interesting historical document. We believe that there's something timeless and authoritative about this word. And we believe it so much that, you know, this church, for instance, the Bible is our authority. We worship Christ, but God's word is our authority. God's word teaches us. So Mark is in submission to God's word. The elders are in submission to God's word. I'm in, submissions to, in submission to God's word because of, and it goes back to what we believe about the Bible itself, that it's not just an interesting historical document. It is God's word to us. Now, I teach a class on biblical interpretation at Ozark, actually two classes on biblical interpretation. And one of the things that I try to emphasize to my students over and over and over again, and I just, just talked to my class this morning about this very point, interpreting scripture is sometimes a, a messy process, a difficult process. There's, you know, it's a big book, and there's a lot of things in the book that are confusing and, and cause us to scratch our heads, and there's a lot, of, a lot of times we get it wrong, and we try to do our best to understand properly what God is trying to say to us through the word. But at the end of the day, the reason why we are so passionate and diligent in our study of scripture is because of what we believe it is. On the other end of the spectrum, though, I also want to give you this caution. The Bible is the Word of God. The Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. But the Bible is not our God. 
there's an egregious sin that, that lurks below the surface in many churches and among many Christians, a sin that I call bibliolatry, where we, we, we actually have an unhealthy view of Scripture. There's so many Christians that, that know very little about Scripture, but what they do know is that Scripture, or they, they assume that there's something um, almost divine about Scripture itself. And so scripture is turned into almost this superstitious magic book. And, and I, I think that that's an error that we need to avoid as well. And that, that leads to the second question. The second question is, what is the Bible about? Can I give you the short Sunday school answer for this? What do you suppose I'm going to say? The Bible is not about the Bible. The Bible is about Jesus. Um, the Bible is not about the Bible. The Bible is about Jesus. You know, when the, when the disciples in the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when they stood up and they preached to, to this audience and, the, you know, some of the first converts um, were, were welcomed into the family of God, they were welcomed into the church, the message that Peter preached that day wasn't, you need to believe that the Bible is fully inspired in the authoritative word of God and then you will be saved. That wasn't what he said. He actually pointed to Jesus, that Jesus has been made both Lord and Christ. And so what scripture, what this word from God is persisting in, in telling us over and over and over again, is it's telling us it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. So in our study of the word, in our application of the word in our lives, the, the point is to bring us closer to Jesus. I want to I read um, a passage really quick, and then uh, we'll open it up to some questions. Um, this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And um, <clears throat> I don't know if I can get there. There we go. Um, actually, that's not right. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, um, starting in verse, I'm going to start in verse 12. And uh, this is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. He says, therefore, since we have such a great hope, we are very bold. Um, we, are not, uh, we are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. Now, he, when he says the Old Covenant, he's referring to the Hebrew Scriptures here, or our Old Testament. And he says, when they read the Old Testament today, there's a veil. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There's a lot going on in that text. But one of the things that Paul says in that passage about Scripture, something that I really want you to hear, is that Christ is the interpretive key to the entire Bible. Christ is the interpretive key to the entire Bible. There's a lot in the Bible that's confusing. I mean, I, I, I teach the Bible for a living, okay? And sometimes people live under the misapprehension that I know something about the Bible. I don't. And I think Mark would say the same thing about himself. I mean, this is a big book. And there's a lot in here that it can overwhelm, it can confuse. 
And the minute you think you have a tight grip over a text, you're proven pretty quickly that you didn't have as tight a grip as you thought you did. I mean, this is a lifelong study. It's a lifelong pursuit to properly understand God's word. There's always something new to learn. There's always some place to grow in. But the one thing that I know for sure is that Christ is the interpretive key. Christ is the interpretive key. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, I am the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets, which was a way of saying, I am a fulfillment of your whole scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. It's pointing to me. And so I, I think we need to start with that understanding. Whenever it comes to a conversation about scripture, we need to start with an understanding of what it is. Scripture is the word of God, inspired and authoritative. There's something timeless about scripture. But scripture's testimony is not primarily about scripture. Scripture is not divine. Scripture points us to Jesus. The point of scripture is Christ. Okay? Now, what sorts of questions do you have that I can... And these could be really detailed questions if, if, if you want, or they could be broader questions. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Question is about the doctrine of inerrancy. Inerrancy, um, just give you a short definition of what this means. It means essentially that God cannot lie. God tells the truth. And so scripture, if it is God's word, tells us the truth. Does that make sense? Logical sense to you? And so inerrancy is the doctrine that scripture is without error. Scripture is without error. Now, I need to clarify what that doesn't mean so that we don't misunderstand, okay? Because there's a lot of misunderstandings about what inerrancy is and what inerrancy is not. By inerrancy, we don't, for instance, mean that we have to impose modern assumptions back on a primitive text. Let me give you one such assumption. Um, when in the bulletin on Sunday mornings, and you, you look at, I don't know if you're, I'm a numbers guy, I apologize for this, but one of the first things I do when I get the bulletin on Sunday morning, I flip it to the back, and I see, what was attendance like last week? What was the offering like last week? Like, I, I, I can't help it, I'm a numbers guy. I like seeing that information. Now, I assume that when there's a number in the bulletin, I assume that number is pretty doggone accurate. Like, precisely accurate. Like, that's, and, but that's our assumption, right? Now, if you've been around very many churches, though, you actually know there's a dirty little secret. The number isn't quite as accurate as you might first assume, okay? Like, who exactly does David McCauley count on a Sunday morning? I see him walking around with his counter. If I go to third service, does he count me again, or does he know everybody that's been in second service and also went to third service? You know, like, and so I, I don't want to throw you into a state of confusion. I don't want you, I don't want you to become despondent about the numbers that you're seeing in the bulletin, but just know that those probably aren't scientifically precise. There's no turnstiles on the doors, okay? Um, but our modern assumption is when a number is given, the number is fairly precise, okay? That's our modern assumption. Now, we lie about numbers all the time, though, don't we? Like, for instance, I'll get Mark to lie. Just a second. I'm going to get him to lie. Okay, everybody ready? Mark, how tall are you? Six foot. Six foot, that's a lie. It's a lie. 
because I know it's not precisely accurate. It's not precisely true. He's probably six foot and a fraction or maybe just below six foot. But for the sake of brevity, we summarize, right? And so it's not technically a lie. It's just not entirely true. So what does this have to do with scripture? When you look at numbers in scripture, just as an example, like an army is counted or a period of time is given, it would be false for us to read some sort of modern assumption back into an ancient text and assume all of those numbers are precise down to the, down to the detail. Or every chronological sequence is exactly so. We don't, as I just demonstrated, we don't even have that sort of scientific accuracy in the way that we speak or in the way that we count. But oftentimes people will read those sorts of assumptions back into the biblical text. So it's not when we have numbers in Scripture that maybe aren't scientifically precise, it's not an error. It's just the way they communicated in the ancient world. Give you another example of what inerrancy is not. And I could spend a lot of time talking about this topic because I, I do spend a lot of time talking about this topic. Inerrancy is also not about um, your particular translation. Because sometimes translations differ from each other. And that's because translations are interpretations from the ancient text, from the biblical text. And so this ruffles a lot of feathers. Now, please don't get upset when I say this. Your version of Scripture is Scripture, but it's also not Scripture. I hope you're okay with that. What that means is our version of the Bible, I think we can have confidence in it. I don't want you to become a, a translation skeptic. We can have confidence in our translations, but recognize that these translations are the product of human beings translating and also interpreting ancient languages into modern languages. So inerrancy isn't about that. Inerrancy also isn't about strict literalism and in interpretation. And I, I can't emphasize that enough. Inerrancy isn't about strict literalism. So um, I was just talking to one of my classes this morning about the book of Revelation. Okay? Revelation has a lot of images in it, a lot of symbols in it. You misinterpret Revelation if you interpret it literally. Because Revelation was not intended to, it's not a type of literature that was intended to be taken literally. You know, when it talks about the sun being dark and the moon being turned to blood, these are figures, these are symbols. They're not intended to be taken literally. But sometimes when people talk about inerrancy, they assume that everything has to be treated exactly in a literal fashion. But that's not what inerrancy is, or it's certainly not what inerrancy should be. Um, so it's not about reading modern assumptions back into the text. It's not about strict chronology. It's not about scientific accuracy. It's basically, if I could just keep it as simple as possible, inerrancy is trusting that God has told us the truth in his word. That if I could just keep it as simple as that, that we can trust that God has told us the truth in his word. I, I hope that that answers it well. Yeah. When Paul said all scripture is God-breathed, That's a great question. When Paul said all scripture is God-breathed, what would Paul have considered scripture? This is a question from 2 Timothy. Um, and Paul certainly, first and foremost in his mind, Mark, would have been the Hebrew scriptures. What we now call the Old Testament. That would have been first and foremost on his mind. Oh, by the way, can I go back to the last question real quick? There, I knew there was one other thing that I really needed to mention. Um, I, 
I have to, um, I teach apologetics, which is defense of the Christian faith. And all the time this question comes up. The Bible is just full of all sorts of contradictions. One text contradicts another text. It's just full of contradictions. Now, there's this thing about accusations, okay? Accusations are real easy to make, but they're a lot harder to back up, okay? So whenever anybody tells me that, oh, the Bible's full of all sorts of contradictions, what I usually respond back to, yeah, maybe you're right. Can you give me a few of yours and I'll give you a few of mine? And usually they have no response because it's just something they read on the internet somewhere. Oh yeah, the Bible's full of all sorts of contradictions and errors and whatever. Most of the contra so-called contradictions that come up when people say scripture contradicts other scripture, it's what I call the covenantal mistake. It's the covenantal mistake that people fail to recognize the difference between the Old Testament law and living under the grace of Christ. So they fail to see the difference between Leviticus and Romans. And so they commit the covenantal mistake and they treat the Bible. The Bible is not one homogenous book. In other words, it's all bound under one cover, but there's 66 different books in the Bible written by very different people in very different contexts, addressing very different needs in very different time periods, separated by hundreds, even thousands of years. So let's not assume that all beca because it's bound in one book for us, that this is one homogenous book. It's not, it's very diverse. And so people, when they bring up contradictions or errors, a lot of times they're playing one scripture against another scripture and they're failing to recognize the vast differences in covenant and time and context and whatever between those two um, different uh, books. So let's go back to 2 Timothy and scriptures, God breathed. So in his mind, in, in Paul's mind, he would have primarily been thinking about the Old Testament. So the question then is the New Testament. What about the New Testament? Is it inspired in the same way the Old Testament is? Well, there's a couple different ways to answer that question. One way to answer that question is to read the New Testament and see how the writers of the New Testament regarded their own writing. And one of the things that we can say about the New Testament writers is that they wrote with a measure of authority, that they intended for their writings to be heard, to be understood, and to be lived out. They wrote with an expectation of authority. We could also talk about what Jesus said about his disciples. In John chapter 14 through 16, Jesus promises you will receive the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will empower your words. Now, is that talking about scripture specifically? Eh, it's hard to tell for sure, but Jesus does seem to promise his disciples some measure of authority in the words that they speak. And I assume that that would also translate over into the words that they write. But for me, the big um, point of evidence for the inspiration of the New Testament is really how those first generation of Christians came to regard the writings of the New Testament. Because within just that first generation of people who lived after the apostles, they were putting the writings of the apostles side by side with the writings of the Old Testament. So there's no dispute or, 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 uh, or controversy whatsoever about how they regarded the Old Testament. It was inspired. But what's interesting is these very first Christians who were primarily Jewish, at least in the first several years of the church, they without hesitancy were putting the writings of Paul 
or the writings of Matthew or the writings of John, they were putting them side by side with the writings from the Hebrew scriptures. And I think that's very telling. Um, yeah, hopefully that answers it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the question is, how do we, how many of you have read or seen the movies, The Da Vinci Code? Have you seen that? Okay. Um, and then there, there's, a, there's a new book. Um, I don't know if it is out or if it's coming out. Uh, but it's making, it's making the claim that Jesus was married and have a, had a family. One thing that I'd like you to know is that's, that's not really new. That, that claim has been around for several years. And it's, it's about as trustworthy of a claim as saying that, you know, we never really landed on the moon or September 11th was an inside job. Um, I mean, this is, this is a blatant conspiracy theory that's not grounded in any history whatsoever. Um, for instance, the people who are making this new claim about Jesus being married and having a family and whatever, they're also some of the same folks who claim to have discovered Jesus's family tomb, which is a concept that is literally laughed at by reputable archaeologists, most of whom aren't even believers. Um, so these theories, here's the problem with the internets, okay? Here's the problem. Um, in, in today's information age, in, in t today's information superhighway is really more like an information sewer, okay? Um, and, and there's really no distinguishing between what is just a ridiculous, um, uh, stupid idea and what is real scholarship. Um, for instance, and this doesn't specifically have to do with scripture, but there's this, there's this guy named Bart Ehrman. And Bart Ehrman is not a believer any longer. Um, he's actually an agnostic. He grew up in a very uh, Bible-believing church and just rejected it later on in life. And now he's just a passionate agnostic person who also is a New Testament scholar, ironically enough. Um, but he was in a debate last year with another agnostic guy. And here was the, top, the subject of the debate. Did Jesus of Nazareth actually ever live? Now, what you need to know is that the notion that Jesus of Nazareth never actually lived, that notion is stupid. It's a dumb idea. There's really no reputable scholar anywhere who believes that Jesus of Nazareth didn't actually live. That idea only exists on the internet, okay? So what was interesting is you have this agnostic New Testament scholar debating against this other agnostic guy, and the agnostic scholar on this side is actually arguing for Jesus' existence, and basically saying, you're an idiot, okay? Stop it, knock it off. There's no archaeological evidence, there's no historical reason, there's no logical reason to say that Jesus never existed. And the same is true about all these conspiracy theories, whether it's in the Da Vinci Code or in this new book. That's exactly what they are as conspiracy theories. And I don't have the time or the inclination to go one by one through all the things that they say. I mean, maybe we could talk about a few of them. Um, but here's, here's what I want to reassure you with. When you, actually, when you actually look at scholarship, when you actually look at serious theologians, serious scholars, serious historians, um, and you get outside of the conspiracy theory world, what you realize is things are a lot more boring than what you first assumed, okay? That, and a, a good deal of study actually um, ruins a lot of our conspiracy theories. And that's true about the Jesus conspiracy theories, too. When you actually study, when you actually, you know, 
look at this more deeply, you realize that there's not really an ounce of truth there. But the reason that they sell is because everybody likes a conspiracy theory. So maybe I can answer some of those more detailed questions if they come up. But yeah, any, any other questions that, that you have? I'm happy to try to answer any. Anybody have any questions? Yes. Yes, I will address that one. That comes up in the Da Vinci Code. You hear that in several different places. The question is, um, books left out of the Bible. I, I would like to address that. Um, uh, so the, 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 the statement, or I, I guess the, the, the conspiracy theory, is that there were a host of, and some people say up to 50 different Gospels, that were competing for entrance into the New Testament canon. And the church got together in a church council um, in the fourth century and basically took a vote. And this was all orchestrated by the emperor, Constantine, um, for his own purposes. Um, and the church got together and took a vote, which gospels do we really want to include as a part of our official scripture? Um, and they voted for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all these other Gospels were eliminated and, 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 um, and were said to be heretical. And so within our postmodern culture then, the assumption is that um, the church prejudicially chose some Gospels instead of others, and why don't we look at these other Gospels, and shouldn't they, just, shouldn't they be given a voice just as much as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Uh, should, so shouldn't we actually look at and study and learn from all these other Gospels instead of looking at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? So um, here's the major problem with that theory. It didn't happen. Other than that, it's a fine theory. Um, but it's just, it doesn't conform to anything that we know historically. There weren't other Gospels under consideration for entrance into the canon, ever, 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 ever. Now, there were at least a couple other books that some people did believe belonged in the New Testament canon. I'll give you two of them. One was called the Epistle of Barnabas, and one was called the Shepherd of Hermas. Okay? Some people at various times did think, well, maybe they should be canonical, maybe they, but that was a minority position. It was, it was never very widespread. The thing about both of those two documents, though, is that they have precious little to do with the life of Christ. Very little to do with the actual life of Christ. They're not gospels. Never were any of these other gospels, or there's a gospel of Thomas, gospel of Philip, and there's like, there's a bunch of these other um, later gospels out there, the gospel of Judas, not a single person in the early church took any of those gospels seriously. Um, matter of fact, most of them were written several hundred years after Jesus actually lived. But the reason why that, that idea still persists in popular culture, and it's not a very difficult, um, it's not a very difficult thing to see why it's still out there. The reason why this idea is still out there is because people would do anything within their power to bring questioning upon Scripture, 
to cause people to question, well, is this the right scripture? Is this the wrong scripture? I just want to set your mind at ease. The story that's told there about the Council of Nicaea in the fourth century, it's just a fictional story. It didn't actually happen. But it sells a lot of books. And so since it sells a lot of books, people think that it's true. Um, but it's not. Um, any other questions? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you say to the person who says, I don't like that man shows these books mm-hmm. and supporting this and that his power structure and all that? What word of encouragement do you yeah. have to that person? There's, um, on, in your handout that I gave you, I gave you some additional stuff here. Um, if you look at, at this, the, the last page, I, I gave you some stuff on... Um, on this issue, because I knew this issue was going to come up. Um, the word that we use for this is canonization. How did books... The Old Testament canon, very non-controversial, to be honest with you. I mean, there's, there's very... There were a few rabbis here and there that questioned whether or not certain books belonged in the Old Testament canon. Like, for instance, the Song of Solomon was sometimes questioned because it's just kind of naughty and it's sensual, and some rabbis are like, I don't know if I want my little kid reading that book, and so I'm not sure if it belongs in the canon. But the, the Old Testament canon, I mean, very little controversy around that. But the New Testament canon, there has been at times different questions like, how is the New Testament canon formed? Why do we have tw- these 27 books instead of perhaps other books? And so I put some stuff in here. Um, I like these top three quotes. Just over a generation following the end of the apostolic age, every book in the New Testament had been cited as authoritative by some, should be some, by some church father. In fact, within about 200 years after the first century, nearly every verse of the New Testament was cited in one or more of over 36,000 citations by the church fathers. Here's what that means. Don't get thrown off by that language, church fathers. All we mean by church fathers is those first generations of Christian leaders after the apostles had died. We historically call those church fathers, okay? So they, they were the ones who followed in the footsteps of the original apostles. And what this quotation is telling you is they were so biblically minded that they quoted from our New Testament documents 36,000 times in just a handful of these church fathers. And they quoted these, these books as authoritative, much the same way that Mark would quote the New Testament as authoritative when he preaches every Sunday. They quoted it to the same effect. Um, so that's the, and so they're not quoting from Mark. Here's one way that I would answer this. They're not quoting from other books that we don't have as a part of our canon. They're not even quoting from the Apocrypha, which was a question that I thought might come up tonight. They're not even quoting from those books. They're certainly not quoting from the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Philip or any of these other Da Vinci Code type books. Um, second quote, the church gave us, or the church no more gave us the New Testament than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. God gave us gravity by his work of creation. And similarly, he gave us the New Testament canon by inspiring the individual books that make it up. Uh, and this last quote from F.F. F. Bruce, the New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in the canonical list. On the contrary, the church included them in the canon because she already regarded them as divinely inspired, recognizing their innate worth and generally apostolic authority, direct or indirect. Here's what these quotes mean. There's a three-step process. I I want you to think of it this way. There's a three-step process. 
First step, inspiration. Inspiration brought about the biblical books. Second step, authority. Because these books were inspired, they were used authoritatively by the first church. Third step, canonization. So they were formally recognized as a part of the biblical canon. Inspiration, authority, canonization. Here's how Dan Brown and others in, in our culture flip that around. They, they want to flip the order. And what they want to say is canonization came first. So the church got together secretly, got together, hatched this plot. We need to, we need to consolidate our power. Okay, this, this is the conspiracy theory. This is the postmodern conspiracy theory. We want to consolidate our power. We want to protect ourselves. We want to protect our interests. So, is everybody, let's, let's have a vote that Jesus rose from the dead. Again, this is all the conspiracy theory. No, like, so nobody for the past 300 years believed that Jesus rose from the dead. But in our own self-interest, let's just go ahead and start believing that Jesus rose from the dead. That sound good for everybody? Okay, we'll do that. Uh, what else should we do? Let's have some books that we have decided are authoritative for us, and let's call them the canon. So let's vote on this. I know there's 50 different gospels on the table. Let's vote for the ones that we like and the ones that we don't like. And that's the story that Dan Brown would like to say. So starting with canonization, then moving to authority, because we've decided that they're, can they're biblical canon, now they have authority. And because they have authority, let's then create this doctrine of inspiration. So flipping the order around. Canonization, authority, inspiration. But what I would like to tell you, or what I would like to, to, to show you, is that the actual history of it, the actual history of the development of the canon, is, is exactly what I, what I previously said. It starts with inspiration, goes to authority. The churches were using these books authoritatively. And then later on, they were simply recognized as, these are the books that we're all using, right? So yeah, let's, let's use them as the canon. And I put in your... Um, in your notes there, just a brief history of the canon. Very, very brief history of the canon. Um, you know, starting in the year 95, which is just a couple years after John, the last apostle, died, um, a guy named Clement of Rome wrote a letter to Corinth and used material from a good number of New Testament books authoritatively. So within the first century, Christians are already quoting these books as authoritative scripture. I put the year 125 down here too because this is fascinating to me. The oldest manuscript document that we have of the New Testament is of a fragment of John chapter 18. Um, and it was found in Egypt and it's dated back to around the year 125. Some scholars think it's even earlier than that. Now that's fascinating to me. Because John's gospel was one of the last books written in the New Testament, probably written sometime in the 80s, okay? And it was written not in Egypt. It was very likely written in Ephesus, which is in Turkey today. And so what, what had apparently happened is that within 30 years of John writing his original document, not only was the gospel of John being copied by scribes, but it was also being disseminated all around the world to places like Egypt and was being used authoritatively within the churches. 
So what this shows is extremely, exceedingly early in the church's development, these books were being used authoritatively. And then on, on we go. I just give you this, this, this uh, timeline here, and I'm not going to go through it with you. But the, what this timeline shows is the development of the canon really happened very early on. And it wasn't until later where the church did get together and they said, okay, so we're all using these books. Let's, let's identify these books officially. Other questions? Yeah. Yeah, the apocryphal books, um, uh, if you come from a Catholic background especially, um, you know, Catholic Bibles include other books that aren't in our Bibles, and so kind of what's the deal with those books? They're called the apocryphal books. Um, a couple things that I want to say about the apocryphal books. Jesus never quoted them. The apostles never quoted them. The early church never quoted them as scripture. Um, Jews regarded these apocryphal books as not being scripture. Um, so there's, there's, a, there's a general consensus early on that these books are what they, they use the word deuterocanonical, which basically, here's what that means. These are good books. These are interesting books. These are books worth reading, but they're not really on the same level with scripture. And there was that acknowledgement very early on. And to me, it's, it's very telling that Jesus and the early church never quoted these as scripture. Jesus quotes, or I'm sorry, the New Testament quotes from every book in the Old Testament, except for Esther. And I think um, there's one more, I think it's Second Chronicles maybe, but it quotes directly from every book in the Old Testament, except for those two. It never quotes from the Apocrypha a single time. So that's the first point. The second point is Catholics themselves didn't even believe that the Apocrypha was scripture until the 16th century. And there's, there's an interesting story behind that. Martin Luther um, was, you know, starting the Protestant Reformation. And one of Luther's critiques of the Catholic Church was, you are grounding too much of your doctrine in books that are not regarded as canonical books. One doctrine that he brought up specifically was the practice of praying to those who have died, offering prayers specifically to dead saints. He's like, that's not in scripture. And, but it is in at least one apocryphal book. I think it's 2 Maccabees or something like that. And so, um, so the Catholic Church got together. They had a, a church meeting called the Council of Trent. They got together and they're like, hey, we'll show Luther who's boss. The Bible's our book. We decide what is and what isn't the Bible. And so they got together, and they did have a vote on the Apocrypha, and they decided to make the Apocrypha part of their canon. But what's interesting about that vote is it was a very prejudicial vote because there were two Apocryphal books that talked about praying to the dead. One that said it was kind of okay, and then another, which is called Fourth Ezra, in case you're interested, another one that said you shouldn't pray to the dead. So guess how they voted? They voted 4th Ezra out, and they kept 2nd Maccabees because it supported their church doctrine. But listen, guys, that's the 16th century. So for 16 centuries, the Apocrypha wasn't really regarded as, as canonical, even by the, the Roman Catholic Church. And so I think we stand on pretty good footing when we say that these Apocryphal books, they're interesting books, I certainly wouldn't discourage anyone from reading them just out of curiosity, but they're not regarded as canonical really by anyone, certainly within the Protestant church. 
Oh, Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, so I, I want to maybe six, six or seven more minutes. Give us about 20 minutes at the end. Um, Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, uh, you can go to Springfield, Missouri, actually, and see some of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I don't know if they're facsimiles or if they're the real thing. Have you been, KJ? I saw you nod your head. Okay. The most significant archaeological discovery in easily in the last 200 years. Um, discovered, first of all, in 1947 in um, caves bordering the Dead Sea area. And um, just by a, a shepherd throwing some rocks into a cave, heard a clay jar break, and they went in, they found all these, these jars full of manuscripts, ancient manuscripts. Um, and they were in pristine condition. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. You just don't find things like this, especially in that part of the world. It just doesn't happen. Um, these manuscripts were made by a monastic community um, before the time of Christ. And they were their precious sacred documents. And within these Dead Sea Scrolls, they had manuscripts of virtually every book of the Old Testament. Now, why they are significant is because the actual text that our Old the actual text of our Old Testament, it's based on a Hebrew text, um, but the oldest manuscript copies that we had up to that point only dated to about the year 1000, like the 9th, the 10th, the 11th century. So our manuscript evidence for the Old Testament was actually not that old. The Dead Sea Scrolls, though, were a thousand years older than any other manuscript we had up to that point. So scholars were really interested to find out, has the text changed? Because sometimes this accusation is brought up about the Bible. Oh, like Jehovah's Witnesses love making this accusation. Muslims love making this accusation. The Bible's just been changed. It's been manipulated. It's been, it's been, it's shifted through the years. And that's where all these false beliefs, Muslims say this especially, all these false beliefs about Jesus and the Son of God and all these things, it's all because you Christians have manipulated and changed the text or whatever. The Dead Sea Scrolls are over a thousand years older than any other manuscripts that we had, and they are accurate to about 99% of the details. That's, that's astounding. That over a thousand years, you have only about a 1% change, and most of those changes are just in, in small issues of grammar. Nothing significant whatsoever. And so the Dead Sea Scrolls have done a great deal to help us... Um, talk about the validity or the reliability, especially of the Old Testament. The Dead Sea Scrolls have also helped us to understand what people were thinking about the Messiah in the first century, because this, this community that, that wrote the scrolls were, uh, were very messianic. And so we can understand what were people, even a little bit before the time of Christ, what were they thinking or, or, or hoping for with the Messiah? Yeah. Um, textual variants. Uh, since we're running a little bit short on time, I want to I point out this page to you because it kind of gets at this issue a little bit, the, the back side of the front page. Um, this, this chart is a comparison chart between the Bible and other ancient documents, or specifically the New Testament and other ancient documents. And what this chart basically says is this. Our manuscript evidence, now a manuscript is a copy, okay? We don't have any of the original copies of any of the New Testament texts, which shouldn't surprise you or alarm you. 
these, these texts were originally written on papyrus, which is a very f somewhat fragile medium, and it just doesn't last more than a couple hundred years. So what we do have is manuscripts, though. And we have more manuscript evidence for the New Testament than we have for any piece of ancient literature combined. The manuscript evidence that we have for the New Testament is just overwhelming, um, especially when you compare it. I mean, no scholar anywhere would question the reliability of the Iliad. Okay? But if you compare the New Testament to the Iliad, the Iliad was written in 900 B.C., roundabouts. The earliest copy is from 400 B.C., which is a span of 500 years, and we only have 643 copies available. And that is the best attested ancient document. But you compare that to the New Testament, which was written between 50 and 100 A.D., the earliest copy is from, I told you about this, from around 125, which is only a span of 25 years. And we have over 24,000 different manuscript copies, not of the whole New Testament, but of fragments of the Old Testament, of portions of the New Testament. So we have over 24,000 different manuscripts available to us. So what scholars do is they take all this manuscript evidence available. And, I mean, people dedicate their lives to this. They take all this manuscript evidence, they basically put it on a table, if you could imagine this, okay? Um, they, they basically get all the manuscripts that we have available, and then they compare them to each other. They compare all these manuscripts with the, de with the design and with the intention of trying to arrive at the most accurate text of the New Testament possible. Now, because archaeology continues to discover new things, and because we, we continue, I mean, even still, we continue to discover new manuscripts, here, this is the cool thing. Your Bible, specifically your New Testament, is more accurate than the Bible of any generation over the past 2,000 years. Your Bible is more accurate than Martin Luther's Bible. Your Bible is more accurate than anyone in the Middle Ages. Your Bible is more accurate than anyone in the first several centuries. Your Bible is more accurate than Augustine's Bible. Your, you could have more confidence in your Bible than any generation of Christians that has ever lived. And it's because of the work of textual critics who study these manuscripts and who are attempting... And, you know, so the question... Sometimes the question of the King James Version comes up. And I know a lot of people are very dedicated to the King James Version and committed to it for a variety of reasons, and I don't want to run that down at all. But here's just one thing that I would say about the King James Bible. The King James Bible originally translated in 1611. Um, when the King James Bible was originally translated, two of the best manuscripts in existence weren't even known about at the time. The two best manuscripts in existence weren't even known about when in 1611 the King James Bible was translated. And so the newer translations that we have have much more textual authenticity to them because of just the work that's been done between these, these new manuscripts. Um, and also the, one of the other problems of the King James Bible is that the knowledge of the biblical languages was not what it is today. One of the classes that I teach is Greek, biblical Greek. And the knowledge of biblical Greek and also biblical Hebrew when the King James was written was not what it is today, which is why you can go to, um, to Rome and see statues of Moses in Rome, and he has goat horns. Moses has goat horns. It's the weirdest thing. 
And I, I, I asked our tour guide, why does Moses have goat horns? And what I was told is because when these statues were made in the Renaissance, the translation of the Old Testament had Moses with goat horns. It actually was supposed to talk about how God's glory was shining on Moses, but they got it wrong. And they actually translated it that he was growing goat horns. Um, it's crazy, right? It's crazy. But our knowledge of the Hebrew has advanced just that much um, in recent years. So textual variance. Um, I've read this statistic um, that uh, the 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 textual variance in the New Testament, one manuscript disagrees with another manuscript. It's only about 1% of our New Testament where there are textual variants, where one manuscript will say one thing, another manuscript will say another thing. Usually these textual variants, because I've studied it a, a little bit, usually these textual variants are rather small, and it's pretty clear uh, that a that a, that a variant has has entered into the text. Like, for instance, sometimes like a, a monk would be copying um, uh, a manuscript, and a monk, in an effort to make something clearer, would add a little comment into the text to to help explain the text. Well, the next monk would get that manuscript, and he would uh, mistake that comment for the text itself. And so all of a sudden, that little comment has entered into the text. But a scholar can see that a mile away. And a scholar can recognize, oh, that's clearly just a scribal comment that was added to the text. And especially when you compare it to other texts that don't have this comment, it's a pretty easy thing to recognize this wasn't a part of the original text. That's why the more manuscripts you have available, the, better, the more accurate you can become. The only two major textual variants in the entire New Testament are John chapter 8, which is the woman caught in adultery, and the end of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 16, just the last few verses of Mark 16. These are the only two textual variants of significance in the New Testament. And what most scholars believe about John chapter 8, and students ask me this all the time, would you ever preach from John chapter 8? The answer is yes, I would. Because most scholars believe that John chapter 8 is an authentic story from the life of Jesus. They just have questions about whether or not it belongs in that place in John's gospel. So most scholars are pretty, they're pretty secure on, on the idea that this happened, but we're not sure if it happened exactly when John's gospel has it happening. Does that make sense? Most scholars on the end of Mark 16, most scholars are pretty well sure that this is not actually the real ending for Mark's gospel. They, they, most scholars believe that this was an ending that was added later on by scribes. The reason why it's still in our Bible, though, actually goes back to the King James Version. Because the King James Version included it, this has now become kind of a part of Scripture for all time. And so most modern translations will have a little, will have a little footnote. Um, sorry. Uh, most modern translations will have a little, a little footnote around those texts. Here's, here's one thing, and I think I'll close it up with this comment. Here's one thing to always keep in mind, though. And, and this is the apologist coming out in me, and, and not everybody really likes this approach, but here's the approach that I take, especially to people who ask questions like these, which, believe me, these are all great questions. They're great things to talk about. But here's, here's kind of my approach to a lot of these types of issues. 
when people start to chip away or nibble away at Scripture. You say, well, Scripture is inaccurate, or you can't trust how it's been passed down, or what about these textual variants, or what about the Apocrypha, or whatever. Here's, here's my response. So have it. Take it. Fine, I agree with you. No, I don't really agree with you. It's just a rhetorical device. I agree with you. Fine, the Bible's full of errors. Fine, there's textual variants. We can't trust our translations. Fine, have it all. You don't like the book of Hebrews because we don't know who the author is. Fine, I love Hebrews, and it hurts me to say this, but you can have it. Just take it. And people are taken aback by that. Like, what do you mean? Well, you're not supposed to say that. You're a Christian person. I'm like, yeah, well, you're the one that's making the argument, so I'm just going to let you win the argument. But here's my response back to you. You still kind of got to do something with Jesus, don't you? You still kind of got to do something with the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. Because you nibbling away at Scripture doesn't change the fundamental fact that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, and that Jesus rose again. And so that's kind of my apologetic approach to some of these issues. Because sometimes people want to chip away at the foundation of your faith, or at least what they think is the foundation of your faith, by bringing up all these, all these issues. Like, well, well, Dan Brown said this in his movie or whatever. I'm like, okay, well, whatever. But did Jesus actually raise from the dead? That seems to me to be a better question. You know? And I'm not saying that because these are bad questions. These are great questions. But I'm just saying, you know, there's an even, an even more important question, too, that, that we have to constantly be driving back to. Well, what about Jesus? What about Jesus? All right, I'm done. Michael. There he is. Okay, this question's in. You, you said you were done, but you're not. <laughs> Which translation do you recommend? Michael, I'm going to ask you the same thing. Which translation do you recommend for people mm-hmm. to be able to fight through the variants, the mm-hmm. translation issues? That's a tough question. Um, I'll have Michael answer it first, and yeah, then, I'll, a, then I'll correct him. <clears throat> that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, it is a tough question because the reality is, as Chad said, any, whatever English translation we're reading, we're reading a translated text. And so it's not going to be perfect. And so my, my primary response to this is always read more than one and read different ones for different purposes. We shouldn't just lock into only reading one English translation of the Bible. Um, there are, there's kind of a scale, and I won't get into all the translation philosophy, but there's kind of a scale from uh, more of a paraphrase. I'm going to take the thoughts and I'm going to try to put those in today's language or like this literal word for word. I'm going to take each of the individual words and I'm going to put those into our language. And different translations fall along the different scale. So um, like the NASB, for instance, is way over here. The message is way over here. Um, so all that to say, first of all, read multiple. But there are two that are kind of at the center these days, the NIV and the ESV. And I read the NIV in part because... Um, it's, it's more like what I've grown up reading. And so in that sense, it, you know, as my daily reading Bible, it just, it it sounds, it fits. It sounds right to me. I also though read it for more principled reasons. Um, a lot of people these days are moving towards the ESV because there's this argument that it's more literal and therefore more trustworthy and respects the word. And this is how you should translate it. And I just think that's a bad translation philosophy. Because, for instance, if we were trying to translate, let's say, musical text from English into another language, and you came across the phrase, every good boy does fine. Like, the point of that statement has nothing to do with boys doing good things. It has to do with the way in which the notes are laid out on the scale. So sometimes literal translations don't communicate the best meaning for a certain thing. 
um, like word for word, that is. And so what I like about the NIV is I think it takes an appropriate middle ground. It's still a, a fairly literal translation, but whenever, for instance, there's another great example of this. Whenever Paul says the Greek word autolfoi, which translated literally as brothers, uh, he is speaking in his language to a group of men and women. And in our language, in our time right now, typically when we address a group of men and women, we say, ladies and gentlemen. And so because this is the way we address it, I prefer a translation that says brothers and sisters, not because I'm like some, you know, liberal or like, hey, go feminists or anything like that. It's because I think it's a better translation. In our language, the way in which you address a mixed group is brothers and sisters. And so in that sense, I think whereas brothers is literally accurate, I don't think it's getting at the, the, what Paul was meaning. And the translation should get at what Paul's meaning. So my answer is, uh, I, I still use the NIV, and I think in some ways, too, it keeps you honest. When you read a more literal translation, you can fool yourself into thinking you're reading the Greek or the Hebrew. You're not. <laughs> um, so I use the NIV, but the, I guess let me add a third one. There's kind of the middle range for me, ESV um, or NASB on the more literal side, NIV right there in the middle, and the NLT I, I find pretty helpful as well. I don't hate the message. I love the message for what it is. But the NLT, New Living Translation, is, um, and by the way, forgive me for not spelling out the acronyms, ESV is English Standard Version, NIV is New International Version, and the NLT is the New Living Translation. And it is a bit more dynamic and readable, and so it's, it's refreshing. If you are really good at reading the Bible a lot, then um, you know, mix it up and read it in another, another passage. Another I literally have nothing to add. Oh, I, I, I love, I, I typically use the NIV. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I really like the NLT, too. Yeah. I, I, just, I, I just like it. Um, yeah. uh, and what he said about translation is absolutely correct. Um, and, and I try to make this point with my Greek students. You know, the, the, the language of the New Testament is not just Greek. It's, a, it's a, actually a specific kind of Greek. It's called Koine Greek, which Koine means common. And um, this, was the, this was the common language of the everyday man. And they know that because they found this type of Greek on like ancient bills of receipt or inventories or even grocery lists. Archaeologists have found this type of Greek. This isn't the type of Greek that was used if you were writing poetry or history or something that you were intending to last, you know, like in, in, trying to make some grand cultural statement. This was the common language of the common man. And so what I tell my Greek students is, our translations should be faithful to that purpose. If scripture was written in a language intended to be understood by the common person, then a translation of scripture should have that same purpose. It should speak to people in a way that they understand, with language that they get. And I remember being in the Philippines. I was a junior in high school. So like this 17-year-old kid. And I'm teaching other 16 and 17 year old kids in the Philippines. And it didn't have anything to do with scripture, but at the end of our time, student raised his hand. He's like, I'm just curious, what is the best translation of scripture? I didn't even know this was an issue, okay? I'm a 17 year old kid. I didn't know that people fought about this. Boy, have I learned since then that people love to fight about this. Um, but he, this was a trap. So he asked me, what's the, the best translation of scripture? And so I gave him, I don't, I don't even know what I said. But then he said, um, we have recently split, our congregation has split because of the King James Bible. And that blew me away. Because I'm thinking, this is, this is a pastor, like a, a kid, but he's a pastor in training. 
in the Philippines, living in a remote province of the Philippines, where English is literally his third language, not even his second language. English is his third language. And there's a contingent in the church that says the only version of the Bible that you are permitted to use is a version of the Bible written not only in English, but in an archaic form of English that they don't even speak in America or England anymore. Like, where did we go wrong? Um, and so, and I think that that's exactly what has happened. We've gone wrong. We've mistaken our translation for what the intent of Scripture really is. The intent of Scripture is to speak truth to our heart. And so I think the best translations are ones that get to that point. Three minutes? Okay. Yeah. Sure. Great. Uh, me, who's going first, me or you? Okay. I'm told I have three minutes to sum it up. You know, here's the take. This series, if I could sort of boil it down to a word in terms of what we've been asking you to do, it would be the word think. We've been asking you to think. Uh, think critically, think evaluatively, think analytically, think about yourselves, think about your world, think in ways that you don't necessarily normally do. Uh, at least most of us don't, right? And uh, the thought that, that has crystallized for me in this series, and I can't remember if I said, that last, said this last time I was up here or not, but the thought that has really come together for me in this series combined with some of the other things I'm studying is that the blessings of the gospel become real to those who think about them. And I believe that that's true. I believe that this is why Paul wrote so many of the letters that he wrote. I believe this is why we were given a book. I believe that this is why in some of these letters Paul talks about setting your hearts and minds on things above. He's not talking about any sort of, some sort of mystical experience. He's saying, think about these things. And I think that if you ever find yourself wondering why, why doesn't this, this, you know, benefits of salvation and the blessings of the gospel that I read about in scripture, why aren't those happening in my life? Well, there's lots of reasons, but one of them may be because we're not actually meditating on them. And so as far as where we go from here, what I want to say to you is think, recognize that when God uh, got a hold of you and called you to uh, worship, he was including in that call to worship your minds. Uh, we love God with our minds. When Jesus called you to discipleship, he called you in part to a discipleship of the mind. So let me be specific with my three minutes and tell you two things I think that means. One, if you don't have a regular habit of reading the Bible, don't waste another day without it. Read the Bible on a regular basis. Take in scripture, listen to it, read it, memorize it. Because you think about all these wonderful things we're talking about Scripture, and I've enjoyed just you know, hearing from the back uh, this defense of our understanding of Scripture. And we have reasons to believe that it's true and inerrant and trustworthy, but believing right things about Scripture is one thing. It's not enough. I'm always reminded of a story, and if I've shared it with you guys, forgive me, I'm going to share it again, about a young man who wanted to go off to college to study theology. He wanted to study God and Scripture, but he wanted to go to a liberal school. And his father was a harsh man and a very conservative man. He said, you can't go to that liberal school. You're going to go to that school, and they're going to fill your head with all these foolish ideas, and you're going to come back thinking dumb things. You're going to deny that Genesis is literal. You're going to think Jonah never happened, all these different things. And so the son was like, listen, Dad, this is the school I want to go to, so I'm going to go. And so he went. And he started studying Scripture, he started studying theology, and he stayed away from home for a while because obviously he didn't have a great relationship with his dad, but he came back about a year and a half later, I think for Christmas break, and he walked into the door, and uh, first thing his dad said was, oh, so tell me what happened. You went to that liberal school, and they probably filled your head with all these ideas. You probably don't even believe the Bible happened anymore. You probably don't even believe Genesis. You probably don't even believe Jonah. And the son said, actually, Dad, you're right. I don't think that Jonah literally happened. I think that it's a great story that teaches us important truths, and so it's true in a way, but I don't think it actually literally took place. And, and the dad was, 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 you know, I told you exactly what's going to happen. You know, I would love the book of Jonah. I told you this was going to happen. You go there, and you'd become dumb. And the son says, I tell you what, dad, how about this? How about you go get your Bible, 
And you read to me, we'll read it together, the book of Jonah. I know how much you love it. So you go get your Bible. Let's read the book of Jonah. I'll tell you why I don't think it's literal story. You tell me why you do, and we'll see who wins the dialogue. And the dad's like, I'm up for a good fight. Let's do this. And so he goes to a shelf, and he grabs his Bible, and he turns to the book of Jonah. Can't find it. He's confused by this because he knows where Jonah is, but he can kind of a little bit flustered and turns to the table of contents. You know, it's on page 700, turns to page 700, looks closely. And, well, what's going on? It looks like somebody tore the pages of Jonah out of my Bible. At which point the son said, yeah, dad, it was me a year and a half ago. So now you tell me this. What's the difference between me denying scripture and you ignoring it? <laughs> and this is an important question for those of us who would raise our hands and say, I think this book tells the truth. Every part of it, every word. What's the point if we're not actually reading the book? So at the end of the day, where we go from here is back to the Bible and we read it. And the second thing I think that comes from this call to think is uh, ask this question of yourselves. And I know this is not a question that we normally ask ourselves as busy adults with full lives. Why do you think the way you think? If there's something that we've learned here in this series, it's that we have assumptions that we're not necessarily aware of that impact how we think and therefore how we live. And this is our worldview. We don't look at these things, we look through these things. And what we've asked you to do, we want you to continue to do, and that's look at the way you think. And I want you to get in the habit of asking yourself, you can't do it all the time because that would be exhausting. But on a regular basis, when you find yourself talking about certain things, they could be spiritual, they could be otherwise, think to yourself, why do I think the way I think? And if you discern that thinking the way that you are uh, doesn't come from Jesus, then change the way you think. So that when you ask that question, the answer is the right answer, which is, of course, Jesus. So, for me, where we go from here is we think. And that means we read the Bible on a regular basis, and we ask ourselves why we think the way we think on a regular basis as well. Yeah, th this, this whole series, which I think has been great, um, uh, has really just skimmed the surface on some really important ideas, some really important truths. And, um, but it's done just that. It's just skimmed the surface. And hopefully uh, some of the things that we've talked about have given you a taste for wanting to go deeper. And, um, and I love that, that, that phrase, the discipleship of the mind. I, I really love that. Um, because, you know, it's, it's been my experience that if we don't get our minds right, um, a lot of other stuff falls apart if we don't get our minds right. And um, it's too easy for us in the culture that we live in to become habituated to a story that is very different from the story of the gospel. And um, to start living a story that is very different than the story of the gospel if we're not really thinking about it. If, if, we're, if we're not being intentional disciples, but we're just kind of um, going through life well, we talked about the examined life, not, not really living the examined life, not really thinking about why we believe this or even what we believe. And so hopefully, if nothing else, we've given you this desire to think more deeply about what you believe and why you believe it. And I go back to, you know, the, where we started this whole series was in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and Mark made mention of it in several different sermons. But um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So our weapons are more powerful than the world's weapons. The world, the world thinks that their weapons are so powerful and so awe-inspiring. But Paul says they don't got nothing on our weapons. Our weapons actually demolish 
spiritual strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought. Just think about that. We take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. And, and that's a, but that's a lifelong discipline. It's a lifelong discipline. Uh, it's, it, it takes training. It takes intentionality um, to, ta- to learn to take every thought captive and to, to live seriously this examined life. And, um, and I know Michael and I, uh, we'd love to talk more with you about this in Mark 2. Um, if you want resources, if you want encouragement, um, if, you, if you want, you know, um, uh, good books to read on, on any of these issues, we'd love to help you take that next step if, if you'd like to. Would you help me appreciate these two guys and the time that they've given to us? <laughs> Occupationally, I have a bunch of jealous friends because they asked what we're doing, and I said, I just go grab two smart guys from Bible college and bring them up on stage, and they talk, and I take notes and ask questions, and they all hate me, but it's okay. <laughs> it's a good life. Uh, we're spoiled rotten to have Ozark Christian College in our backyard and to have guys like this, many, many more that you wouldn't even recognize who are serving at our Bible college, who attend here, uh, have to listen to me preach every week, but volunteer to teach and serve and do amazing things, both over in our student ministry as well as in our adult ministry. And I'm grateful to that. Let's thank God for that, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for blessing us with resources, with people who love your church, with intelligent, God-led men who have not walked away from their faith or the church, but they love it. And they serve because this is their passion. Thank you, and I pray that you bless their families. But I'm really excited, God, about those who have come each and every week and have taken notes and have been challenged, uh, like even in my own life, uh, things that have been refreshed and things that have been made new. And for those uh, opportunities that you give us through your Holy Spirit and through the power of your word, we are a blessed people. So tonight we thank you. And uh, just pray safe journeys home for everyone here. And to, if we should wake tomorrow uh, in your world, may we live differently because of what we've learned and thought of and experienced with you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You hey, are dismissed. Real quick, before anybody leaves, I got a sales sit down, Ronnie. <laughs> before, before anybody leaves, get, get out a piece of paper. Just real quick. Get out a piece of paper real quick. Thank you. Um, get out a piece of paper. I want to give you my email address. My email address is uh, ragsdale.chad, ragsdale.chad at occ.edu. Um, Michael's is defazio, that's D-E-F-A-Z-I-O. No, it's not. How is that? How'd you get away with that? So M. defazio. Really? Okay, at occ.edu. Here's the reason... Here's the reason why I'm giving you those email addresses. Michael and I are leading a trip to, um, to Europe this summer. We're going to go to Turkey, Greece, and Rome and see some of... We're going to go to Corinth. We're going to go to Ephesus, Philippi, Athens, Rome. I mean, it's going to be awesome. Um, it's going to be the first two weeks of, Ju- of June that we're going to be doing this. And if this is something that you're interested in, um, uh, again, first couple weeks of June... If you're interested in this or if you know someone that might be interested in this, please send us an email, either myself or Michael, and we can send you uh, the relevant details and information um, about that trip. So, again, email us if, if you have any um, 
uh, interest in Listen, that. Listen, you can also email the office uh, and we'll get you that information. Uh, June 2nd through the 15th, these guys are leading it. They'll be your tour guides showing you biblical archaeology and some, there's an amazing website that'll show you what you do each day. If you're interested in that at all, please take advantage of that. And Brad's letting me know the texting number is active. If things come to mind, uh, please continue to send questions in and we'll we'll pass them on, answer them, do what we can to serve you guys. Now you're dismissed. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.